0: We are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms, those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the
1: conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Hi, this is Jonathan Drapkin, and I'm the president and CEO of Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress, and this is another episode of Patterns and Paradigms. We hope you were able to join us for our last episode with our guest, Carolyn Grossman-Marr. If you have any questions or comments, please send them to patternforprogress slash podcast. And please remember to follow us. Uh, Carolyn brought her unique perspective about the relationship between New York City and the Hudson Valley. As our podcast looks to shape what comes next, Carolyn clearly suggested the possibilities for enlarging the food supply chain between the farms, Hudson Valley packer plants, and the enormous market which is New York City. The pandemic exposed what many knew existed, food insecurity. There clearly is an opportunity to support regional farms and improve the opportunity for locally sourced food, not just for New York City, but for the residents of the Hudson Valley. In this week's episode, we are indeed fortunate to be joined by a visionary in higher education, the president of Bard College, Leon Botstein. Leon not only joins us to share his opinion on higher ed, but also K through 12. Bard runs multiple inner city public schools, including one in Columbia County's city of Hudson. These high schools are a fascinating approach that suggests that you can acquire the basic educational needs by the time you've completed the 10th grade and then move on to complete two years of college in the 11th and 12th grade. One size does not fit all, obviously, but it is a unique and quite effective approach. And during the pandemic and economic fallout, it is critical to find different ways to educate young adults with new skills. But before Leon joins us, let's ask Joe Chaika, what's up, Joe, to hear what Hudson Valley Pattern for
2: Progress is up to this week. Joe? Hey, JD, thanks. Once again, there's so much happening here at Pattern. Well, it's October. The leaves are changing, the days are getting shorter, and the temperature, well, let's just say it's dropping. It is also the time of the year that Pattern starts to talk about its upcoming annual housing forum. This will be Pattern's 13th, that's right, the 13th annual forum dedicated to community development and housing. The annual forum gathers leaders and professionals from across the Hudson Valley in the field of affordable housing, Community development, real estate, municipal government, housing development, planning and engineering, and community lending together in a summit to discuss current challenges, trends, and housing policy that impacts the Hudson Valley region. In years past, we have held a half day event, typically at a conference style venue. Since we can't get together in person this year, the forum will be in a virtual format hosted over Five consecutive days, November 16th through the 20th. Every day's session will have three components designed to range in 30, 60, and 90 to 120 minute blocks of time. Directly after each session, attendees are invited to stay for a solutions lounge. The keynote and panelists are also invited to join the conversation. The goal of the solutions lounge is to talk in more depth about the challenges brought up by the sessions and to answer the question, so what are you going to do about it? Registrants will have the ability to select what days they want to attend or they may choose to attend the entire week. Topics for this year will include homeownership, multifamily development, gentrification, the real estate market, and a session on diversity, equity, and inclusion in housing. Mark your calendar now and look for more information about registering for the forum on our social media, emails from us, and on our website. I promise you it will be a great event, again, November 16th through the 20th. Hope to see you there.
1: In today's episode of Patterns and Paradigms, we are delighted to be joined by the president of Bard College in Dutchess County, New York, Leon Botstein, a position he has held since 1975. He is without question a true innovator and for many, a Renaissance man. And yes, in his spare time, he is the conductor of the American Symphony Orchestra, and founder and co-artistic director of the Bard Music Festival, which is known throughout the world. Leon, I am absolutely delighted that you could spend some time with us today. How are you doing?
3: It's my pleasure. Well, I'm, I'm doing um, well, uh, as well as anybody can expect to be doing under these circumstances. Um, the um, I, I guess the question really is... Uh, uh, not so much um, a very uh, generous concern for my personal well-being but the a concern for uh, how does a college um, or a university uh, especially a private university or even a public university um, fair in these times and uh, and the first and foremost of the pandemic. Uh, we're having this conversation at a time where there is a lot of attention on the behavior of college students and their, uh, their role in the spread and control of the disease and uh, a lot of debate over the reopening of schools. So Bard uh, not only has a college campus here in Andale on Hudson, Uh, which is about 100 miles north of New York, 90 miles north of New York, but it has... um runs eight public high school early college programs in six cities so we're and these are not charter schools these are public schools so we're in the midst of the decisions you reopen an urban school system we have high schools each of them is uh, 500 people large and therefore and um, they're in you know two in New York one in Newark one in Cleveland one in, one in Baltimore one in Washington DC one in New Orleans so we we run the gamut we have a small program in Hudson New York as well so these are public um, public institutions and in collaboration with urban school systems. So we're in the midst of the opening, reopening online learning question. Uh, so we have an undergraduate campus here. We have graduate programs um, uh, and international programs uh, as well, a campus in Berlin. We collaborate with a campus in Bishkek, in Kyrgyzstan, in Russia, in China, um, and, um, uh, on the West Bank in the Middle East. So we have a kind of global connection um uh and program. Uh so we're pretty far flung. So the COVID matter is not only a local matter but um uh, national matter. And in that regard in that regard we're lucky we have had knock wood no cases. We are we don't have fraternities and sororities and we don't have the kind of um habits, if you will, that lend themselves doesn't mean our our undergraduates have less fun than any other undergraduate, but their fun is of a different nature. And they seem to be uh, as a group um, uh, bathing as many adults are responsibly um, in trying to contain the spread of the disease. Um, but this is a trying time. Uh, uh, there are pessimists who believe that the economic, the mixture of the pandemic the change in cultural values and demography, that um, this is a critical moment for higher education and that dozens and dozens of institutions will fail in the next five or 10 years, and that there'll be a shakeout and also kind of economic collapse, even in the public sector in American higher education, which has been one of the prides of the American economy and societal structure. and that it's in danger and something needs to be done so this is a kind of wake-up call in a funny way the pandemic has done us a favor by ripping the mask whatever illusion was left on the quality of our educational system has ripped it off and i think it's an opportunity we face uh, an honest way to say nobody's to blame uh we're not casting any stones against teachers governments unions but let's start from scratch let's face the fact that young people are not learning anything in school therefore going online is trying to transfer an empty bucket into an even emptier pipeline and so um uh suddenly this is a kind of you know the emperor's no It's the wizard of oz you know and uh and we need to face it as a nation and do something about it uh it particularly acute in elementary and secondary school and in higher education as well we talk about the liberal arts we have high minded tones about what we do in college we actually aren't doing quite the job and um we uh and it's also in 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 not the stem fields and the useful so-called useful parts of higher education but the country really doesn't understand why you know the humanities and the arts are essential to a competitive economy you know we've traded nonsense about how the liberal arts are useless and you can't get a job and it's all the facts don't bear it out. It's a bunch of prejudices. So I think the pandemic is a great opportunity to start a new conversation about American education, public education particularly, and refund it, reinvent it. And um, uh, now that the party is stopped, there's no reason to return to the old party.
1: So l- let me ask you, th- this probably means that you're more of a STEAM kind of guy than you are a STEM kind of guy, adding the word arts into that um, uh, lexicon there because, you know, and I always think Leonardo da Vinci was probably the first STEAM person that I knew of because he was truly um, understood the need to bring the arts into education. But Leon, you're in this incredibly unique position where you're not just contemplating this for higher ed, you are also trying to um, do this for, um, at the high school level, maybe you can explain to our listeners just what those high schools are about.
3: So it's a very simple idea. Those high schools are more than high schools. They they are created with the idea that our human development—that is, say, menstruation and maturity and puberty—happen earlier now in the 21st century than they did, let's say, in the 19th century. But our educational system was constructed when people came of age later. And so today's, um, yesterday's 18 is today's 15 or 16, let put it simply. Um, and that um, we have, we're putting, um, I don't know, big animals into miniature pens. They don't fit anymore and we have to get rid of it. Uh, the fact is that the system of elementary school, Um, And then middle school or junior high school and high school is a catastrophe. First of all, it segregates childhood uh, from uh, early adolescent, from late adolescent. And the best way to bring a child up is in an integrated age group. In other words, it's not all 17-year-olds. You don't spend all your time with your exact people, people who are exactly born within one year of yourself. You've yeah. never done that. People don't marry that way. They don't have neighbors that way. They don't play bocce ball that way. They don't play basketball that way. They do nothing. They don't work that way. So why do we school them that way? So that, number one. Number two, the middle school has, is, a, is a uniform catastrophe. It needs to be an idea that was of the mid 20th century should be abandoned. We need to go back to a simple elementary secondary school system and high school at the 10th grade. You go elementary school from K, pre K to six six to 10 is high school and then you go to university you're all grown up enough to be seriously taught by serious professionals i mean the 18th century 14 year olds apprentice themselves with master artisans so why can't they do that now it's a complete waste of time particularly for the very poor and disadvantaged, but also for the rich and privileged. I, I have no brief for the rich private schools of America. They're not very good at what they do. And there are a couple of good public schools here and there, but by and large, the American high school is a is a living catastrophe. COVID has provided us an opportunity to end it. What we have shown empirically since 2001 is that we have a system by which we take into the high school after the eighth grade young people. And by the time they finish the 12th grade, they finish two years of college.
1: Fascinating. So in the p model, which is uh, IBM's notion of taking it from, what is it, ninth grade through 14th grade, right through community college. This is very different.
3: Yeah, it's a little different. It has similarities. uh, But I think that is much more um, kind of a, I am not really a great fan of the P-TECH model. Uh, First of all, it segregates, again, something you mentioned. Um, There's never been an illiterate scientist in the history of science. There's never been Einstein read literature, played the violin, and that had something to do with his ability to discover. Newton was interested in philosophy and religion. Uh, It is simply nonsense the way we as Americans try to slice the way we would be in a grocery store, uh, one product from the next as if they were entirely separate. They're not. Um, uh, Most of our meals are mixed in ingredients. I hate to use this vulgar metaphor, but the same is with the uh, discoveries of science and the progress in engineering and design. The humanities are not useless adjuncts, and no scientist of any quality would make that claim. So in our model, the real simple insight is we treat young people at the age of 15 14 and 16 as if they were adults that is to say with the presumption of adulthood and they get taught by people with graduate training not in education but their fields and they have a curriculum which allows us to give them the community college equivalent the two-year degree tuition free so they go to the Bard high school and at the end of the 12th grade they get a high school diploma from their city and they get a two-year AA degree, and they can go to college as juniors. They accelerate.
1: How long, Leon, has this been in effect, and have you had an opportunity yet to look at the the results of the model to say, yes, this this is actually working, and here's why?
3: So it does work. We've been at it since 2001. So next year we'll be at it for 20 years. We started in Manhattan, then to Queens, then to Newark. So we spread out. We have a lot of data of match pair analysis. uh, And many, many of our students are overwhelmingly from poor and disadvantaged backgrounds with bad middle school um, uh, histories in terms of the quality of the school. So the key that we've discovered by the research is motivation. Uh, Somehow the individual and the community and family network around that individual has to have the motivation uh, that believes that learning and um, achievement in learning is an integral success of uh, life and happiness. And we have to break the tendency within popular culture to denigrate learning or uh, as somehow incompatible with popularity, with uh, identity, uh, whether gender identity, uh, particularly. So what, what does it mean to be a man? Right? Um being smart, you know, the kind of n- prejudice we have against uh, uh, the life of the mind. So you have to create a culture which favors learning as a, as a as something that age group cherishes so um and we have great success for example we have we are the leading high school programs in new york state in the entire state in the success rate of minority students finishing a four year college degree
1: how how do they know to apply to you how
3: well, each school system is a different admissions process. Um, we are so-called a screen school. That is to say, we don't apply tests. I think the standardized tests are entirely discriminatory and mm-hmm. uh, are, are are terrible uh, instruments. Uh, but we do um, screen by writing sample done in class and an interview. Um, so we, we really are trying to find the person who is eager um, to get on a track of of serious learning and um uh we uh, and we have a tremendously good success now i don't believe this is the only solution that needs to be applied you know anybody who comes uh, we're not selling it's it's as, as if you were in the weight loss industry and you had your own product, a little green pill, you gave somebody and it universally made everybody lose weight without side effect. We're not selling that. We're selling, there has to be a, a mixed protocol, varying different approaches to solve this problem. It can't be just one solution. Um, and uh, the solutions include finding a different way to train, reward and compensate teaching uh as a profession um it there are many things that need to be done but um this does um represent a major part of the solution to the larger problem and that is we have a lot of people you can get people to rally around pre-k you can get people to rally around elementary education america loves innocent looking children and um, they would love to invest in them Nobody likes adolescence. But you can't actually, um, um, even if you start at the beginning, you have to follow through. You can't possibly just start at the beginning. You'll lose all the gains you make. Um, and who who's caring about the generation of adolescents now coming forward? So we decided to intervene in the area that we knew best, uh, owing to a lot of experience with a residential early college Uh, in Simons Rock in Massachusetts that became part of Bard in 1979. So we had a lot of data from there of, of how younger adolescents could handle a college education.
1: The Simons Rock experience, I think I once mentioned to you, I actually know um, several students that have gone through it and, and they would have been students who had they been in a traditional high school, they were, um, so far advanced that they, it never would have been the right environment, the right setting for them. So, explain a bit more about Simon's Rock and, and what that is, because…
3: Yeah, yeah. Simon's Rock is a residential, um, if you will, alternative to residential private schooling. It's um, uh, There is a day school program for the… Berkshire area, but basically it's a residential early college, that is to say people start college uh, after the ninth grade. uh, after the 10th grade, excuse me. Uh, and so uh, we now have a program where it starts the Bard Academy at Simons Rock, which starts, it provides the ninth and 10th grades, but it's a model of starting college early. The difference between Simons Rock and what we do in the public sector is that at Simons Rock, as you suggest, it often attracts extremely um, energetic, um, creative, and um, by some way advanced students, you know, students for whom they've outgrown the public system and well, or the conventional high school. Uh, our Bard high schools are not for that. Our Bard high schools are based on some of the empirical experience with younger ages that we had at Simon's Rock. But it's based on the idea that you can rescue a middle schooler who's lost their way as a student you can make up for deficits, you can actually inspire a student for the first time at this age, that it is not only for um, precocious or um, uh, fiercely independent young people, it's, um, it's an actual uh, wake-up call and uh, intervention at a crucial time in a person's life.
1: Leon, you made it very clear that this is a public school, not a charter school, and how have you found it to be accepted by the general education community?
3: Well, it's, it's a very good question. So, you know, um, one of the reasons I think the pandemic is a huge opportunity to uh, reinvent the game, in other words, to invent the rules and the game, is because the game is completely broken. And uh, our being members of the public education system have become painfully aware, operating within and every in six cities, the politics are never benefit the child. No politics, Democratic, Republican, I don't care who you are, politics and education never benefit the end user.
1: Yesterday, the New York City principals announced their vote of no confidence of yeah, the yeah.
3: mayor. For for I, 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 yeah. so number one, two, that the state in this thing, the conservatives are totally right. The state has wildly overregulated schools, so uh, just to just to go across the street uh, is it practically impossible. Let alone be different. There's nothing a central administrator in a big school system hates more than an exception but education is all about exceptions you're an exception my child is an exception and we want our child to be treated exception and now they want to treat us as if we are anonymous soldiers with the same uniform that won't work so the fact is that that um regulation the state is the bureaucracy the paper pushing Uh, The administration, it is beyond all belief, the amount of money that's wasted and the offense to common sense. You can always understand why these regulations existed, because the society loves to dump on the school system responsibility for things that went wrong. People don't have lunch, so feed them lunch. They're not healthy, make them healthy. Um, uh, They want to protect them from... uh, children from abuse by adults, put the burden on the schools. They want to protect them from abuse by parents, put the burden on the school. So suddenly the school system inherited um, uh, the way people throw wrappers off gum they chew you know over their shoulder but the recipient is a school system and has been burdened down by this mass of regulatory expectation and paper and a litigious society that's willing to sue so you go to any meeting. it seems to me that they're kind of the elephant in the room is always the lawyer you know and there's nothing if if um, politics is poison to the end user of the educational system. The beneficiary, so is the lawyer.
1: Okay. So so, 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 so,
3: I, so it's very hard to work. I have a lot of sympathy, and then of course there are the unions. I happen to be a great fan of unions. You know, I'm a good liberal. Um, um, you know person who believes people who work need to be defended, and so forth and so on. But unions are imperfect institutions, and they become, they also haven't played a totally admirable role in the fight to improve quality. And I understand that they need to defend themselves against uh, uh, bureaucracies. Take New York State. um, In average school district, how long does a superintendent hold a job? not long enough to actually change the color of the envelopes you know uh it's completely ridiculous so you have um and i have sympathy for the local school boards it's the last of democracy we're not sure we're entering an election we're actually the election will be considered legitimate, but I know very well that I can throw my school board out. I'm not sure I can get the president out of the office that the president occupies, but I'm certainly sure I can get rid of my local school board.
1: All right. Let's wait. let, Let, there's so much you've thrown on the table. So supposing there was this opportunity to redesign the school system. Where would you start?
3: Well, I would start, uh, Let's get rid of the higher education piece. I would refinance all the state universities as part of the post-pandemic stimulus. I would do what Abraham Lincoln did in the 1860s, I'd redo the Moral Act. Every state in the union would essentially have its state university ledger brought to zero. So the states could reinvest in the universities without the federal government, the federal government having essentially amortized the debts that had been accumulated. The American public university have been starved to death especially since 1980, but in California, thanks to Ronald Reagan and the idiocy of the idea that a state university was a kind of drain on the budget or an improper intrusion of government. Universities create wealth. Universities create wealth, not only by what they create in research, but they create wealth by training people who earn more, whom you can tax more aggressively. So it's ridiculous. And the state universities have have to pass on their extra burden of cost onto the consumer. That has to stop. So you can't have this high tuition raised for public university. Second, you need to deal with it. So you have to refinance a public university and you have to refinance the student debt. You have to basically change the financing system of how people pay to go to college. Everybody should pay something, but according to the ability to pay. And Mm -hmm. there should be some kind of equitable system put into place. In the elementary and secondary school system, what I would do is I would create, uh, as we did after World War II, a real investment in recruiting and training a new generation of teachers. The pandemic will accelerate retirements, Mm -hmm. and make the possibility of recruiting a new generation of teachers. And they have to be trained in a way that um, is more the way we train doctors Mm -hmm. by expertise in their field and then supervised clinical experience. I would essentially put the education schools out of business. We need people teaching physics and mathematics who know physics and mathematics not to know how to manage a classroom. Um then i would um rethink how elementary education fits with secondary education and higher education as i said earlier i'd reduce the amount of time of public schooling from 12 years to 10. Mm -hmm. so you save a lot of money Mm -hmm. um and uh make it more efficient now we spend 12 years of people's time and they have very little show for it and you might condense that into 10 years Um, I would, um, so I would shorten the system and open many options for young people getting out at the age of 16, not 18. Um, And I would uh, really um, experiment with uh, having older children help younger children as part of the curricular experience. I would, I would moderate the age segregation so I would have a situation by which in a public school high school kids would help third graders and um, there would be much more um, uh, fluidity Uh, and, um, and I would put more common sense into the curriculum we fight a lot about what we put in. People argue about which books they can read, what the curriculum should argue. We ask too few questions how they should learn. And the last, I would put in a modern testing system. So kids have to be tested, but testing has to be part of learning. We never would train a kid to play baseball by um having that kid go out on the field make a bunch of bunch of errors and then tell that kid 4 weeks later an aggregate reading of how many errors they committed when the kid actually um instead of hitting the ball and running to first base runs to third base they call him out right away or her out right away they call that kid out and the kid learns immediately and never does it again the same in music if you you're teaching a kid how to play music. You don't tell that kid on a delayed basis uh, that they made 20 mistakes you, as they make the mistake. And computers can do that. You can take a standardized test of any kind and ask a question on a timed basis like a chess set, a chess game, and like a chess game, and you can give the answer. The moment you give the answer, if you give the wrong answer, Uh, a program is engaged, the clock stops because we want to know why you gave the wrong. People don't give the wrong answers for the same reason. Some, they just don't know the answer. That's possible. But if they have a mathematics problem, which they have figured out and they've gotten the wrong answer, they may not understand in some of the steps in the mathematics. So then they get a program to review it and to figure out. So they learn from their mistakes. We don't have a testing system that learns the mistake. We have a testing system that just punishes the kid for no reason. The SATs, whatever test you want to take, the regent, they're not learning instruments. They're punitive instruments. What are we doing? So we need to have a testing curricular relationship, which is entirely reformed and which is objective, as best a test can be, and timed. There's no problem with that. But helpful to the young person taking the test. And therefore, the teachers should be the people who design the tests, and then you can always have a you know follow up with a national, or statewide system to measure levels of achievement and to help the child understand uh, what's yet to be done.
1: So, um, as you said, one size will, does not fit all. So, um, how does does um, broadband? and where we have moved um, or are moving as a result of COVID, open up opportunities. Could there be master teachers in one school Um, being able to, that one thought that I've had is that you could have a master teacher who's the best in teaching English and make that person, you know, third grade English, make that person available to everyone, not get rid of the teachers, who are in the room that are listening to the master teacher, but instead they're there saying, please raise your hand if you're not following this, and immediately jumping on, as you're suggesting, this person does not understand that. Is there some co- maybe my system isn't the right way, but is there no. some way to integrate the oh, technology?
3: So technology has been integrated by teaching and education from the, uh, uh beginning of recorded time so uh teaching integrated writing and the printed book and the you know the telegraph and the telephone and the uh, radio and the television and the gramophone we are edu- as people who teach we um, absorb technology and we adapt to technology the current technology um is a great supplement, but it's not a replacement. So your description, uh, what we have discovered in going online, both on the high school level and on the college level is nothing has proven to us that in class learning, the personal in real time relationship between a student and a teacher and among students the creating the peer environment of learning is indispensable. Any illusions that the machines and online would replace the classroom, the school building, is complete fiction. The the great thing about the pandemic is it put to death the utopian fiction of somehow a robot replacing the human. Uh, Teaching is as human as the most fundamental human activities. It's about relationships between and among humans in real time. Now, technology can help. So, the example you gave, right? I can go online with my students once I know them. I can't get to know them online, but I can once I know them the way you can with your family. You have children, let's say, or you have a partner and uh, you know them and now you're separated from them. Zoom is a great thing. Great thing. Uh, but uh, the idea of my meeting somebody I'm going to spend my life and have children with by, uh, through Zoom is an implausible proposition. Um, the same way with teaching. Once I know the student, I can extend the relation. I can supplement it. I can add to it exactly as you suggest. But um, yes, and can be much more efficient and connect people. Along, What we've discovered with a lot of international education is that we can use the technology to extend the real life experience. A student group can come from one part of the world, go to another part of the world, spend eight weeks together, and then you can sustain that relationship for much. And that's where its real power is in extending and augmenting the relationship, supplementing the real life experience. So the virtual is hugely helpful not as a surrogate, but as an extension, extending the life of, um, of, of the real life inspiration.
1: So let, let me jump to, so a lot of what is going, <clears throat> well, may happen as a result of COVID is the need to retrain a workforce in industries or sectors that are not performing and move them into sectors that seem to be growing or have the potential to grow. Right. What would be, I mean, there's a there's so many people involved in workforce training.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, aside from your earlier statement that you'd like to invest in people a broader education so that the arts, humanities are not lost, and yet... We do know that for, what is it, in in New York, roughly a third of high school students, that's it. That's as long as they're going to be in the education system. So would you either say, that's just wrong, and we should be thinking that everybody can, or if high school is the end of their formal education, do we redesign what that experience is so that they can have a job that may pay well?
3: Okay, you asked a very good question, and you actually suggested the solution yourself. So if I were in charge, which I won't be, but if I were, (laughs) um, uh, I would do the following. I would say that uh, you would have an elementary system of six years, a secondary system of four years, and then a minimum of another university experience of two, so you would, not shorten the total length of schooling that was the baseline schooling for employment and citizenship, but it would be distributed differently. Um, basically you would, uh, uh, by shortening the inefficient parts and adding the more productive parts, you would, um, provide a better base for the population that doesn't go on to higher education. The second is that we may actually have to increase the access to higher education for more citizens, because as you're suggesting in the 21st century, work will require more of a knowledge skill base than it did a generation or two generations ago. So high school is not now adequate uh for either citizenship as our current politics has made painfully clear and um uh and it's not adequate for work so what needs to be added and improved first of all basic reasoning facility and capacity mm-hmm. and also um basic scientific and uh, computational literacy uh knowing um how uh machines work computational machines work uh how the computer works and how to code and uh how to understand um the basic principles of of mathematics that apply to daily life such as risk probability all the things we talk about in the pandemic um so simply and what we call civics we need uh, uh, a nation of citizens who actually knows um something about uh, law, the constitution, uh, knows something about, um, the historical controversies, uh, uh actually can, um, and something about, uh, the relation of the United States, uh, as growing up in this country to the rest of the world. Um, and, um, it is, um, and we don't actually succeed in that. So I would think that, um, uh, I would, uh, I think there is a way to uh, provide our citizens with a base education, which allows them to enter uh, service employment or um, certain kinds of work that the nation needs that doesn't require more higher education. On the other hand, there are increasingly um, there is a demand for specialized training after schooling, whether it's on-the-job training or a mixture of on-the-job training with um, with some institutionalized-based training. Uh, education shouldn't be only reserved for the young. I mean, there is some reason to believe that uh, the people who are being born now will have productive lives till they're a hundred they'll have replacement parts. Our generation won't have replacement parts, uh, not brain replacement parts. We might get hip replacement parts, but we're not gonna get, There maybe we can get a heart transplant, but we don't really have an artificial heart yet. But I would predict that modern medicine and science will allow in some future time, in the late 21st century, someone, whose knees begin to hurt will replace the knees, but you know, whose memory suddenly is slipping and they're gonna put chips in there. And that um, uh, our useful life will be extended. You know, our grandparents retired at uh, 62. And died at 63 or four or five. Our parents retired at 68 and died in their early 70s. Well, our children will um, retire when they're 80 and uh, die in their early 90s. You know, that is an extended life. So there's no reason that when you get your college diploma, even at age 21, that should be it for education. That's part of our tragedy um, that um, uh, people will have more than one career. People will change careers. Uh, people will have to learn a new set of skills because of the changes of the thing. Medicine, person who graduated medical school in 1955, has had to learn a lot since 1955 in order to stay active in medicine. Somebody who graduated medical school in 1970 is going to be out of date, even though they're still practicing, and God forbid you should be their patient, unless they actually have improved you know uh my father was a pioneering oncologist well you know he was chairman of a department at a medical school but the when he retired what we could do with cancer and what we could do in treating cancer is unrecognizable to what people can do today so in order to do that you have to learn new things you know um and uh Instead of x-rays, people read MRIs and CAT scans. So um, learning is a lifelong enterprise, and uh, we have to look more carefully at how universities help that lifelong enterprise.
1: So, okay, so you've given us and our listeners so many things to think about with regard to education. But before our time is up, it would just be foolish of me not to let you talk a little bit about your passion with music
3: well um, it's not it's not a passion it's interesting that um people think well uh it's a pa- no it's actually my profession. I didn't grow up wanting to be a college edu- administrator or an educator. I grew up wanting to be a musician, which I've remained a musician. The trouble is that in higher education people draw administrators from fields. You can be a biologist mm-hmm. and end up as an administrator. You can be an engineer and you can be a philosopher and end up as an administrator. You can be a lawyer and end up as an administrator. For a long time, the president of Harvard was a guy who taught at the law school. Um, and so that's not unusual. And uh, in my case, I happened, I'm not the only musician actually uh, to end up running an institution. But um, the accident was that my career as an educator was an outgrowth of my uh, interests, um, in a field that the university has an investment in. In my case, it was music.
1: And you so set up I a curriculum. I mean, you you actually designed a curriculum or worked music, on no, trying.
3: No, at- no, no I, I trained to be a performer, and um, okay, and so I then and also someone who wrote about music, wrote about the history of music, and wrote about music. So that was so I always believed I would have a career teaching and performing. But that then I got picked off to be an administrator, but I didn't stop performing or writing about music. So I've had a parallel career uh, running institutions and also maintaining a career as a performer. So I'm similar to um, someone who was um, many Oxford and Cambridge colleges have people who've run them who've continued their professional work while they ran the institution.
1: All right. So, it's not a pr-
3: passion. It's a it's a burden. It's hard work.
1: Uh, no, no question about yeah. it. Those who excel at it are are working people. Yeah. The only
3: a- the only sane people in a musical experience are the people who are in the audience. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. But in the midst of COVID um, in Italy, i just picking one example. Right. They used opera to. As a country that supposedly, I, this is more your field than mine, loved opera. They used it to heal. So is there a role for music coming out of COVID, the social unrest and everything? And can you say that in two or three minutes to me?
3: Oh, sure. I, I'm I'm not sure whether it does, but music is an essential form of the expression of being human, in my view. And so um, we have actually streamed live performances recently, socially distanced with masks. Music is a public art. It's an art of way people identify membership. Um, they also identify differences, unfortunately. It's not always to the good. Uh, music can you know uh, embolden armies. It can uh, embolden um, a sense of difference as well as a sense of sameness. But in my view, music is a um, is the highest expression uh, of of what we could be as human beings it 's a form of communication that is at the one hand private and obscure but deeply personal and also public. It is not a language, but it functions a little bit like a language. And so um, the silence to which we have been um, condemned in our public spaces is a tragedy. And therefore there's a huge hunger and we look forward to returning to making music. Um, And so uh, I, um, the Bard Music Festival had the series called Out of the Silence, which you can actually access online at the Fisher Center at Bard College. And these are performances by uh, a young professional orchestra which is in residence as a graduate program at Bard called The Orchestra Now. And we've released some recordings of The Orchestra Now and we look forward to returning. It's one of the things that is most painful about the pandemic is the inability to make music together And create a community of listeners in real time and space. Um, That's a real loss. There's no virtual replacement. Um, And um, so uh, it is, um, to me, it is, you know, when people talk about essential workers, um, as in the Bible, I think musicians are essential workers.
1: So, Leon, let me leave it at that. It has been a pleasure. Just my pleasure. Um, to have the benefit of your experience to talk about education and may we return to a world that is better than the one we left. Thank you for your time today.
3: Thank you for your interest.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.